Content warning. This podcast may contain unsuitable language, depictions of adult themes, and content of a violent and distressing nature. Listener discretion is advised. This is Crime Trials, Episode 5, a show that focuses on the stories behind the crimes as they work their way through the criminal justice system. From tragedy to verdict. Sometimes looking at the actions of someone through a lens of reflection can help us to understand what may have driven them to their lowest depths of depravity, even when that depravity can never be justified. With the benefit of hindsight, we can all agree March of 2020 was a scary time for us all. The world was shutting down, and there was so much unknown about the impending global pandemic. It was a frightening time, even under the most ideal of circumstances. For Michelle Boat of Pella, Iowa, her fear and anxiety seemed to be amplified. On March 12, 2020, she had just finished her shift at the hospital, where she worked in the laundry department. She arrived home at 3.15 in the afternoon to discover her husband, of 20 years, had gathered his belongings and abandoned her. I went to work that day. I do into work at 6.30 in the morning. Until 3.15. And you got off work at 3.15? Yes, ma'am. What did you do then? I went home and I realized that he was gone. Do you remember what day that was? I believe it was March 12th. How did you feel when you realized on March 12th that Nick had left? Heartbroken, sad, despondent, devastated, destroyed. Like my whole life had just walked out the door. There weren't going to be any more Thanksgivings or Christmases without him. He was my whole life. Just the month prior, in February 2020, Nick Boat received a friend request from a woman named Tracy Mondebaugh. The request would turn out to have been an error. However, Nick was immediately intrigued by the stranger. As far as Nick was concerned, it was serendipitous. In light of what was to come, others might have a different name for it. In hindsight, it was a fateful mistake that would eventually lead to one woman sinking into the deepest depths of depravity and another losing her life. However, at the time, Nick felt like he was gaining a whole new life. 
He was enjoying the happy accident of a younger, by a decade, woman landing into his DMs. He felt like a teenager again, and the best part of his day was smiling at his phone and exchanging messages with a stranger who gave him butterflies in his stomach. A stranger who lived just 45 minutes away in Ottawa, Iowa. A few weeks later, on March 8, 2020, Nick and Tracy finally met in person, and sparks flew. The sparks flew so high, just three days after their first meeting, Nick was packing up his things and leaving his wife. He was moving on. What he couldn't have anticipated was his wife's reaction. To Michelle, Nick's infidelity didn't matter. Those kinds of things could be forgiven, especially since she decided Nick was blameless in the matter. Someone else had wooed him away, and the fall clearly landed with the wooer. In fact, all that mattered to Michelle was getting him back, like a lost piece of property, or a puppy who had strayed too far from home and didn't know his way back, just needing to be found. In the days following the separation, Michelle had been drinking heavily, trying to numb her pain. After a few weeks of constant intoxication, Michelle decided she had enough wallowing. She was ready to be proactive in her quest to find her lost man. So she set out to find him and bring him home. Nick Boat worked at Vermeer Manufacturing in Pella, Iowa. A few days after he left, Michelle showed up at his job and demanded he return home immediately. When he refused, she did the next logical thing. She physically attacked him and again demanded he return home. Accordingly, security showed her out and told her if she came back, they would press charges. Next, she called her wayward husband on the phone and told him she wouldn't give up so easily. He belonged at home, and she was going to bring him back, whether he wanted to come back or not. After being shown the door at Nick's job, she phoned her wayward husband, leaving him a message about his new love interest. She threatened his new girlfriend and demanded he pass the message along. She told him, quote, She messed with the wrong mama, and you don't belong to her. She needs to give you back. Michelle made it clear there would be consequences for Tracy if she didn't return her husband immediately. Eventually, she discovered Tracy's identity and began following her around town. She slid into Tracy's DMs and told Tracy that, quote, You'll be seeing my face in your dreams very soon, because I'll be there when you open your eyes in the morning and when you close them at night, end quote. Then she sent Tracy an ominous photo of herself sitting at the computer with a stern expression. On March 20th, Tracy noticed she was being followed by someone in a silver Cadillac. She had been followed almost 40 minutes from Pella to her hometown in Otamwa. Tracy soon realized it was Nick's, quote, psycho wife, end quote. She called the Otamwa sheriff's office and told them she was being followed and was in fear for her life. She requested law enforcement meet her at a gas station and escort her home. When law enforcement arrived, Michelle was just up the street waiting for Tracy. When law enforcement questioned her, she admitted to following Tracy, but explained she had a very good reason. She told them 
that Tracy had taken her husband. She was only following her home to find out where he lived so she could beg him to come back home. Michelle seemed incredulous when law enforcement told her she wasn't allowed to follow people around to their homes and harass them. Eventually, Tracy and Nick filed a restraining order against Michelle, telling the court that Michelle had followed them around a few times and had physically attacked him on more than one occasion, demanding he return home. Two days later, Michelle went to a local hospital for a mental health evaluation. She was admitted for five days before being released with a recommendation for counseling. Michelle left them an online review, telling them that they, quote, took excellent care of her when she needed it most, end quote. After arriving back home, Michelle took to Facebook, ready to make a post about her lost item. She posted a photo of Nick and stated, quote, So I'm posting pictures of my husband who was lost. Please help him find his way home so he can be safe again. Signed, Mrs. N. Boat. In another photo, she said, quote, It's been a few weeks now and he's still lost. God, please show him the way home before he ends up getting hurt. Signed, Mrs. N. Boat. On her third and final photo, she pleaded with him directly, stating, quote, You are the most important person in my life, besides the kids, honey, and I love you so much, Mrs. N. Boat. Clearly, she is taking the personal route, despite the formal sign-off. To say that Michelle wasn't coping well would be a massive understatement. She was having the equivalent of an adult tantrum. She wanted her property back, and her patience was running thin. Now, by way of background, this was Michelle's second marriage. Her first marriage also ended in divorce, a divorce she also didn't take well. She would often compare Nick to her first husband and told him she still loved her first husband, and Nick was a poor substitute and could never compare. So Nick was perplexed that she wanted him back. But we aren't letting Nick off the hook so easily. While Nick would later testify that he met Tracy on Facebook, there were other allegations that he actually met her on Facebook dating, where he had an active profile. Regardless, even though Nick didn't leave cleanly or with integrity, he still had personal will and agency and had the right to end his relationship without physical violence and death threats, even if he is a lying, cheating piece of garbage. Now, when Michelle wasn't planning on how to get Nick back... She was counting the days he had been gone. Literally. Each day in the calendar, she would mark how many days he had been gone. She did that all the way up until May 17, 2020, when she marked him gone for 68 days. She commemorated this with a Facebook posting that said, quote, Not everyone is given the chance to grow old, so appreciate and thank God for every single day of your life. Amen. This would turn out to be a prophetic post. The very next day she would mark Nick gone 69 days, it would also be the last day Tracy Mondaba would live. In Michelle's version of events, she was down to her last $6 and decided she was going to go out and get herself some chicken to eat. On the way, she saw her husband's maroon F-150 truck at the laundromat. She decided instead of getting chicken, she would follow the truck and find out where her husband was living and beg him to come home. She followed the truck to Burger King when she realized that Tracy was driving Nick's truck. 
she followed the truck to Vermeer Manufacturing and watched Nick and Tracy having lunch together. What happened to Vermeer? She parked the truck and he came out of the building and got in the truck and they ate I would, whatever they got from Burger King, I'm assuming is what they ate because they ate. And then he turned to her and he kissed her. And then he kissed her again. After having what would turn out to be her last meal, Tracy drove home to the apartment she was sharing with Nick, never realizing that Michelle was following behind her. To Michelle's surprise, Tracy drove to Glenwood Apartment Complex, where she and Nick had first lived together 24 years earlier. To Michelle, this felt like another humiliating level of betrayal. As Tracy parked, still wearing her seatbelt, she didn't realize that Michelle pulled in next to her, until it was far too late. I got out because I wanted to tell her. I wanted to tell her how much I wanted him back. And I wanted her to leave him. And I got out of the truck. I mean, I got out of the car. And I went around to talk to her. And I opened the truck door and she started hitting me and screaming at me, calling me a crazy bitch. Was there anything else that you noticed when you opened the door to the truck? Yes, it smelled like smoke. The truck smelled like smoke, and we had purposely quit smoking to buy that truck. That's what the money we used to pay for that truck. Michelle was incensed that the car smelled like smoke. She and Nick had both stopped smoking specifically so they would have the extra money to purchase the truck. She grabbed Tracy's purse and dumped it out on the seat, looking for the cigarettes, convinced it was Tracy smoking in her and Nick's truck. In her version of events, Tracy attacked Michelle. We were, she was hitting me and hitting me and hitting me, and I had my hands up. She's yelling at me. And I just, I just snapped and I grabbed the knife. After stabbing Tracy once in the heart, mortally wounding her, Michelle drove home. Where just 17 minutes later, the police would find her freshly showered, denying any involvement in Tracy's murder. Police arrived within minutes of Tracy's attack. Two neighbors called 911, reporting a domestic altercation between two women in a car. 
One neighbor could hear them arguing and heard one woman saying over and over again, He's not your man, and he don't belong to you. The suspect vehicle was described as a gray four-door Cadillac. When police ran the plates on Nick's truck, they discovered there was also a gray four-door Cadillac registered at the same address in Pella on Prairie Road. When police knocked on Michelle's door, she didn't answer right away. The police banged on the door for over five minutes. While they were waiting, they noticed the engine of her car was hot, and there was blood, hair, and a necklace belonging to Tracy Mondaba on the exterior passenger mirror of the car. Despite Michelle's denials to the contrary, this case was never about who done it or how it was done. According to the prosecution, it wasn't a why done it either. However, according to the defense, the why was very important. The why was because Michelle was in a sheer panic over a global pandemic, and this was a rage killing, a crime of passion killing, a partial self-defense and partial my client is batshit crazy and snapped defense. The only problem with this defense is the clear signs that Michelle hunted down Tracy with the express intention of murdering her. The evidence was damning from the moment the police found Tracy's dead body still seatbelted into Nick Boat's truck. Apparently, during the struggle with Tracy, Michelle lost the tip of a blue latex glove. Yes, Michelle was wearing latex gloves. And she was driving around with a butcher knife in the front seat of her car, along with a hammer, a tire iron, a shovel, and a pair of high-powered binoculars. The only things missing were a tarp and duct tape. The trial of Iowa versus Michelle Boat began on May 3, 2021. It began with the prosecutor telling the jury that Michelle Boat was scorned, obsessed, and seething over Tracy Mondaba's relationship with her husband. Scorned, obsessed, seething. It's May 18th, 2020, and a woman by the name of Tracy Mondaba maneuvers a pickup truck through the drive-thru at the Burger King in Pella, Iowa. She's picking up an evening meal for herself and her boyfriend, a man named Nick Boat. The truck Tracy is driving is Nick's truck. Tracy doesn't know it, but as she squeezes that pickup truck through the narrow drive through lane, Tracy's being watched. Some might even say hunted. Nearby, her hunter watches through the window of a Cadillac. Her hunter is scorned, obsessed, and seething. And her hunter is prepared, armed, and angry. Very angry. Oblivious, Tracy places her order and drives forward. And when the cashier hands her her food in that brown paper bag, little does she know that will be her very last meal. He goes on to tell the jury how Michelle hunted, stalked, and watched her husband and Tracy eat dinner together. He tells the jury that Nick and Tracy's relationship was just nine weeks old, and they took every opportunity to spend time together. 
even if it was just during Nick's dinner break. He told the jury that even though Nick was still married, he was separated from his wife and had moved on with his life. However, Nick's wife hadn't moved on because she was obsessed and filled with jealousy and rage. He told the jury he will show them video evidence of Michelle stalking Nick and Tracy at Vermeer Manufacturing and again during the short drive home to Nick and Tracy's new apartment. He told them that before Tracy knew what was happening, she was being attacked by the defendant. But before Tracy can undo her seatbelt, this defendant is on her. Being scorned, obsessed, and seething has led to this moment. The defendant is armed with a knife and is wearing latex gloves. She stabs at Tracy. Tracy tries to fight back, pulling the defendant's hair and trying to defend herself. But she's unarmed. She's unaware the attack was coming and she was restrained by a seatbelt. In the end, Tracy Mondeball never stood a chance. We'll see that Tracy has defensive wounds to her hands, but despite her efforts, one of the stab wounds slices into and stops Tracy's heart. Nearby, we'll learn that one neighbor hears someone saying something like, he's mine, you can't have him. Another neighbor sees someone covered in blood walking away from the truck. He told the jury that there will be very little doubt as to who committed this murder, and there will be very little doubt that it was planned and premeditated. He told them about Michelle's calendar, where she marked how many days her husband had been gone. He explained her actions that day were merely a retrieval mission. Michelle planned to remove her rival and bring her husband back home. He described for the jury how the police tried to save Tracy's life. But she was beyond saving. The responding officers, as you might expect, are focused on trying to save the life of the bloody, limp woman still in the seatbelt. They try. They try heroically to save her life. But the damage was just too much. The stab wound, just too deep, too well placed. We'll learn Tracy Mondeball's heart beat for the last time in the blood-soaked cab of Nick's truck. Next, he told the jury it took the police just 17 minutes to figure out that Michelle was their main suspect. When they arrived at the small house on Prairie Road, they knocked on the door for five solid minutes before Michelle answered with wet hair and wearing a robe. But there was other evidence around the truck, evidence that stood out. We'll learn that there was a fingertip torn from a blue latex glove, suggesting the killer planned far enough in advance to obtain, bring with, and put on rubber gloves during the attack. This was no spur-of-the-moment murder. This was planned out. 
In addition, we'll learn that when Tracy fought back, she grabbed the defendant's hair. Hair that law enforcement found in her hand. Hair that the crime team recovered. Hair that the forensic scientists tested. And hair with DNA that matches this defendant. Law enforcement also noticed a running toilet in the bathroom where Michelle had just showered. When they lifted the lid, they found a bloody towel, and wrapped inside of it was one bloody blue latex glove with the fingertip missing. The missing fingertip would later be forensically matched to the latex fingertip at the crime scene. The defense obviously had a harder job with their opening statements. They were also having a hard time communicating with their client, who had some unreasonable expectations of her attorneys. In a pretrial hearing, Michelle complained to the judge about her lawyers and even wrote a letter to the judge. In that letter, she stated she didn't think it was fair that her attorneys were allowing her husband to testify against her since he abandoned her and was responsible for this entire mess. She also didn't want the ear and eye witnesses to testify against her because she believed they could have identified her from TV. To say that Michelle didn't grasp the totality of the evidence against her would be a massive understatement. Regardless, eyewitness identification didn't matter, because her defense wasn't planning on arguing actual innocence, or even going with a full self-defense claim. They were going with a defense strategy that would hopefully mitigate her level of responsibility, based on sudden passion and or temporary, diminished capacity. In short, they were hoping for mercy, or jury nullification verdict, because their client was so pathetic, needy, and out of touch with reality. Some might call that the, please feel sorry for me defense. Sometimes, that actually works. This would not be one of those times. They began by telling the jury their client was guilty. Then they tried to explain away the evidence that led to premeditation. They leaned into the presence of binoculars and admitted their client was stalking Tracy and Nick. However, conveniently on that day, she wasn't stalking them. On that day, day 69 of Nick being gone, she was just out for some chicken when their paths crossed. It was just a lucky accident. The next piece of evidence was the latex gloves. The defense explained that Michelle was driving around wearing those gloves because of COVID, and in fact, used those same gloves for her job in the hospital laundry department. Finally, they addressed her arsenal of weapons she had with her in the front seat of her car that day, including a tire iron, a pry bar, a hammer, and a shovel. The defense explained that those items were merely for her protection. You see, Michelle was so frightened without her husband to protect her she had to be prepared to defend herself at a moment's notice, and that included driving around with all of those tools on the front passenger floorboard of her car. We give extra points to the defense for delivering those rationalizations with sincerity and conviction. The prosecution was in an enviable position because they had so much video, eyewitness, and forensic evidence on their side. It only took them three days to qualify their witnesses establish chain of custody, and present their compelling evidence. Their most notable witness was Nick Boat. He accused Michelle of abusing him for 20 years, stalking him and Tracy, 
and repeatedly violating the no-contact order he had against her. During his testimony, Michelle cried uncontrollably into a tissue. Of note, he said that he met Tracy when she tried to, quote, friend a friend, but she fat-fingered my picture instead. This accidental friending led to them exchanging messages for a few days when Tracy offered up her phone number. They began speaking over the phone and eventually arranged to meet where they went on a romantic first date of searching for deer antler sheds in a nearby creek. Searching for discarded animal parts sounds absolutely majestic. He said they felt like they were friends forever and really hit it off. He admitted at the time he was living with Michelle and their two teenage children. However, the heart wants what the heart wants, and his heart wanted the lady behind the random fat-fingered Facebook friending. He went on to tell the jury that his relationship with Michelle was always abusive, and throughout their 20-year relationship she repeatedly told him he was worthless and she was still in love with her first husband. Ugh. Anyone else sensing Michelle has a little trouble letting go? Nick told the jury that three days after his first date with Tracy, he told Michelle he was in love with someone else, and he was leaving her. Michelle allegedly told him she wouldn't allow him to divorce her, right before she assaulted him, cutting his eye and leaving bruises all over his body. That attack resulted in a no-contact order, which Michelle violated often and repeatedly. He told the jury he didn't understand why Michelle wanted him back because, quote, she never loved me, end quote. And with that, the prosecution rested their case in chief. It's no surprise that the defense put Michelle on the stand. The only way to prove diminished capacity would be through Michelle's direct testimony. It was also their chance to humanize Michelle and allow the jury to feel sorry for her and possibly show her some unwanted mercy. It was also their chance to humanize Michelle and allow the jury to feel sorry for her and possibly show her some unwarranted mercy. Let's face it, the prosecution had a very strong case. Michelle pretty much cried throughout her entire testimony. While she came off delusional, with oversimplified and childlike thinking, she didn't come off sympathetic or remorseful. On direct, she testified about how sad and heartbroken and devastated she was when Nick left her. He callously told her he was in love with another woman. He reminded her that she constantly told him how awful he was, so she shouldn't miss him. She admitted to stalking Nick and Tracy online, and in real life. She also admitted to leaving several threatening messages for Tracy if she didn't return her husband to her. However, she was adamant that she had no intention of murdering Tracy that day, despite her arsenal of weapons. She testified that once she saw Nick's truck at the laundromat, she was curious as to who was driving, so she decided against getting chicken and went back to the laundromat. But it was Tracy she saw instead. She watched her load the truck with clean laundry, intending to follow her back home to find out where they were living. Unfortunately, she didn't go home. Instead, Tracy went through the Burger King drive through She waited for Tracy to exit, again hoping to follow her home. Instead, she followed Tracy to Nick's work at Vermeer Manufacturing. She testified, I just watched her. 
and followed her to wherever she was going because I wanted to know where my husband was living. While watching them eat dinner together in the car, she saw them embrace and kiss twice, which was devastating. She told the jury she only followed Tracy home so she could come back at a later time and beg Nick to come home to her, where he belonged. However, once she saw where they lived, it was another dagger to her heart. They were living at the same apartment complex where Michelle and Nick lived when they first began dating. She told the jury once she saw where they lived, she decided she wanted to talk to Tracy and let her know that she wanted her husband back and wanted Tracy to leave him. Apparently, Michelle tracked down Tracy's ex-boyfriend through Facebook, and the two began communicating. She was strongly encouraging Tracy's ex to fight for her and win her back so she would leave Nick. She was going to remind Tracy that she already had a man who wanted her, and she needed to give back Michelle's man. On cross-examination, the prosecutor questioned Michelle about her attempts to get Tracy back together with her ex. Prosecutor Bull took Tracy through the same timeline that the defense put her through, but with more pointed questions. He confronted Michelle with some of her messages to Tracy. In one of them, Michelle stated, quote, You'll be seeing my face in your dreams very soon, because I'll be there when you open your eyes in the morning, and I'll be there when you close them at night. In another message, Michelle told Tracy, So tell him to go home, because that's where he belongs. If you don't, I'll be on you soon enough. To the prosecutor, this was an implied threat that Michelle intended to harm Tracy. She expected her to return her man as if he were a lost library book. Michelle ended her messages with, quote, See you soon, end quote. Michelle testified that she wasn't planning to harm Tracy despite those comments. Michelle stated, I wasn't going to attack Tracy. I was only trying to scare her away from my husband so she would leave him, so he would come back to me. Michelle admitted that she assumed the only thing standing between her and Nick reconciling and him coming home was Tracy Mondebaugh. She reiterated to the jury she only intended on talking to Tracy but it was Tracy who escalated the event. She told the jury she was already driving around wearing blue gloves because of COVID, but she didn't have the knife in her hands when she approached Tracy's door and opened it. She stated it was Tracy who first attacked her and began calling her names. Tracy screamed at her, hit her, scratched her, and called her a crazy bitch. After Tracy's attack, only then did Michelle step back, reach into her open car door, and grab the knife in self-defense. I don't know. I had my eyes were closed. I don't know what I was stabbing. She you had also, her hand in my face. And you scratched her face. Yes. And you sliced her right thumb. I don't know. I don't know. It was a struggle. We were having a tussle, a struggle, a fight. A... And then you chose to stab her. Right? I, yes, I stabbed. 
I snapped. And, then and I stabbed her, yes. And then you stepped back, right? No. You picked up your glasses at that point? No. Well, didn't you tell us on direct you picked up your glasses? Yes. And you just said it. You didn't pick them up before you stabbed her. So when did you pick them I, up? I dumped her purse everywhere first. And then you picked up. Because she had cigarettes in her purse. And I wanted to see if she was the one smoking in there. I was, I was out of my head. I was freaked out by all this. The prosecution pointed out that Tracy was still seat belted into the car. At any time, Michelle could have stepped back and stopped the attack. She never had to reach for the knife. She always had the choice to walk away. A choice that Tracy didn't have. And at that moment, you knew Tracy was hurt badly, didn't you? I didn't know. I'm sorry, I thought you said on direct examination that the reason why you didn't tell the police the truth was because you realized how hurt Tracy was. Yes. So you knew Tracy was hurt very bad. Yes. So you called 911. No. You called out for someone to get her help. No. You wiped the blood off your face and you got back into your car and left, right? I got back in my car and left, yes. After you wiped the blood off your face, right? I just pushed my hair back. Michelle testified she was in a panic after stabbing Tracy because she knew she was in trouble. She was in self-preservation mode and in shock. It didn't occur to her to render aid or call for help. The prosecution was able to show consciousness of guilt as Michelle's actions showed she was able to follow meaningful steps to hide her crime. She fled the scene. She washed her clothing. She took a shower, and she attempted to hide evidence of her crime. Specifically hiding the bloody towel and latex glove inside the water tank of the toilet. She also had the presence of mind to deny her involvement with the crime when she was questioned by law enforcement. I didn't know what to do. Well, you I never been through anything like that in my life. I just... You knew enough to get rid of the evidence, right? I panicked. But in your panic, you knew self-preservation is what you needed to do, right? Yes. And you told us you put the clothes away and you hid the gloves, right? Yes. And where's the knife? Under the sink in the bathroom. You took a shower? Yes. Because you were trying to wash away the evidence of your crime. And I was trying to calm down, yes. And then the police knock on the door. On the window, yes. And you answer the door. Yes. And you're not crying, are you? No, I was trying to calm down. And then you went to the police station? Yes. They asked you questions? Yes. 
You denied knowing anything about Tracy's killing. Yes, I did. They asked you multiple times to tell you, tell them your side of the story, right? Yes. And then the police tell you, Tracy has been hurt seriously, right? Yes, yes. And your response was, God works in mysterious ways, doesn't he? Yes, I said that. Yes, God does work in mysterious ways. On redirect, Michelle cried uncontrollably while telling the jury that she felt abandoned and alone by Nick. He threw her away and looked right through her as if she didn't exist. Michelle couldn't cope with the abandonment and felt like no one would ever love her again. She was also filled with regret. She never plotted or planned to harm Tracy or Nick. She only wanted Tracy to leave her husband alone. Michelle only wanted the opportunity to show her husband how much she loved and appreciated him by cleaning for him, cooking for him, and kissing his face all over. You know what, that wouldn't make me want to return home either. With that, the defense rested their case in chief, and the prosecution began their closing arguments. The prosecution began by going through each of the counts against Michelle, including the lesser-included charges. This strategy bored the jury to tears. All of these elements of the charges are discussed when the judge presents the jury with the jury instructions. However, some prosecutors also do this during closing arguments if they are worried the jury has cause for reasonable doubt. Usually, this is briefly discussed by way of overview. This prosecution used their time to discuss these counts and the relevant evidence in slow, painstaking detail. This is the prosecution's last chance to engage the jury and wrap up their case in a compelling story-style format. Ultimately, both sides are just storytellers, using the facts and evidence to each prove their case. The prosecution should be using their final moments with the jury to weave in all the admitted evidence and highlighting the testimony that proves the elements of the charges against the defendant. Eventually, eventually they got it together and urged the jury to find Michelle guilty of first-degree murder. The prosecutor explained to the jury that the evidence showed motive, means, and opportunity. He explained there was more than enough evidence to show this was a planned attack, with plenty of warning by Michelle of her intentions to harm Tracy. They told the jury the motive was simple. Michelle believed by killing Tracy that Nick would move back in with her. The assistant prosecutor, Jared Harmon, stated, quote, It was intentional, it was malicious, and it achieved what the defendant wanted to achieve, which is to put out of Michelle's way the one person and the one thing that she believed was standing in the way of her reunion with Nick Boat, end quote. Again, the prosecutor told the jury that Michelle was scorned, obsessed, and seething when she followed Tracy that day. The ADA said nothing Tracy did that day should have put Michelle into a homicidal rage. He said the only provoking conduct in this case 
was by Michelle herself when she opened the door of Nick's truck and confronted Tracy with a knife. The prosecution summed up the case by stating, Michelle Boat didn't act because of some sudden, irresistible provocation. She was the provocation. But for her conduct, but for her actions, but for her stalking, but for her knife attack, Tracy Mondabaugh would be alive today. When the defense gave their closing arguments, they told the jury, quote, I don't want you to sympathize with Mrs. Boat. I don't want you to give her mercy. She doesn't deserve it. She killed someone seatbelted in her truck with no weapon. Killed her and left her for dead. Drove off. That is not asking for sympathy when I ask you to consider why. He told the jury that, quote, This isn't a movie. It's not TV. What's happening here is a real-life tragedy. I will tell you that Michelle Boat is responsible. Michelle Boat is the one who had the knife. Michelle Boat is the one who stabbed her. Michelle Boat is the person who killed Tracy Mondebaugh. So far, this is sounding like a better closing statement for the prosecution rather than the defense. Eventually, they got back on track to the defending part of their closing arguments. They argued that Michelle simply snapped when she saw Nick and Tracy kissing. She wasn't handling the breakup well. In Michelle's mind, that was her husband of 20 years, and they were still married. The defense urged the jury to consider Michelle's state of mind. Defense counsel told the jury, quote, Each of you, remember back to March of last year, how scary your world was. The fear, the chaos, the isolation that we all felt in the early days of the pandemic. That's where Michelle was 69 days before the 18th of May. So that's the backdrop. That's the context. That's the big picture. He reminded the jury that Michelle hadn't worked for two months. She was down to her last six dollars. Her husband was no longer providing for her or taking care of her the way he had vowed to when they married. Michelle simply snapped. She smelled the smoke in the truck that she had helped sacrifice to purchase with another woman behind the wheel. A woman she watched kiss her husband. A woman she blamed for taking her husband. They argued this was a clear case of diminished capacity. Defense counsel told the jury that the prosecution simply hadn't met their high burden for first-degree murder. He stated, quote, The state will not have met its burden to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that what happened on the 18th of May, 2020, was first-degree murder. It was not. We will stand in front of you and ask you to hold her accountable, but only for what the evidence supports, and that is not first-degree murder. Instead, it is manslaughter. He ended by saying, We're asking for you to find Michelle guilty of voluntary manslaughter. We believe the evidence has shown, and the lack of other evidence, that this is the charge that most fits the facts. He finished by stating the reasonable findings were for manslaughter. 
The prosecution, of course, disagreed. They stated that Michelle hunted, she gloved up, and she plunged the knife into Tracy Mondebaugh's heart with the sole intention of murdering her, which she accomplished. The prosecution asked for a conviction on first-degree murder. The jury clearly agreed with the prosecution, because just 45 minutes later, they came back with a verdict of guilty as to first-degree murder. Due to COVID protocols, Tracy's family was unable to attend her trial. However, they were just down the hall, waiting for the verdict. You could hear cries of relief from her loved ones after they were informed of the jury's decision. Tracy was a loving mother, grandmother, sister, and daughter. She left behind four children and ten grandchildren who miss her dearly. With Michelle's convictions, they were able to get a small measure of closure. Their sentence will always be more profound and harsh than anything the state could give to Michelle Boat. In Iowa, the first-degree murder conviction carries a mandatory sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole. This is exactly the sentence that Michelle received. Michelle's defense attorney vowed to file an appeal. Now, this murder inadvertently started with Facebook, and it's only fitting that it should end with Facebook. After Michelle's guilty verdict, Nick took to Facebook one more time. He stated, quote, I just want to thank everyone for their prayers and thoughts. Tracy was a great woman, who I love dearly. She did not deserve what happened. If I could change spots with her, I would. To the family and friends, I understand if you hate me. I am truly sorry for your loss. I hope in time you can forgive me. I finally found someone who loved me, and I loved her. I am so sorry. Please forgive me. The poor guy sounds absolutely heartbroken, doesn't he? For Nick Boat, sometimes lightning strikes twice. Just three months after Tracy's murder, Nick got engaged to another lucky lady he met on Facebook. This time, even younger than Tracy. Ain't love grand? Thank you for listening to this episode of Crime Trials. If you are interested in supporting our show, please recommend our podcast to a friend or post about us on your social media page. Any social media interaction helps other listeners to find us.